Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 31st. We begin with an update on the war in Ukraine. We speak with Frank Ledwidge, a professor of military capabilities and strategy at the University of Portsmouth. Frank shares his thoughts on Russia's pledge to pull back troops from the capital of Kiev and how President Putin is changing his objective moving forward. Are we doing enough as a nation to help Ukrainian refugees? And has the influx of refugees from Ukraine created a disparity among refugees taken in from other countries? We discuss with global investigative journalist Brian Hill. It's been a long time coming, booking a real vacation for the first time in two years. But what does that mean for HR managers having to deal with a tidal wave of summer vacation requests from employees? We speak with Andrew Caldwell from the HR consulting firm Peninsula Canada. And finally, it's another installment in our series, Where We Live, focusing on what shapes Calgary and our community. This time out, our Dave McIver examines the legacy left behind from the 1988 Winter Olympic Games. When it comes to the war in Ukraine, the Russian army has reached what's being called a point of culmination, meaning Russia is making no significant advances. With some insight into the current situation, we're joined this morning by Frank Ledwidge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy at the University of Portsmouth. Thanks so much for joining us, Frank. Appreciate your time. Yeah, pleasure. Okay, so let's get right into it. What's the current situation in Ukraine, and why are Russian forces no longer able to make any kind of significant gain in Ukraine? Well, they've expanded their efforts now. They've gone as far as they can go with the supplies, logistics, and capabilities they've got. And it makes sense, actually, for them to to redirect their, their energies and their operations and focus them on one area. So, I mean, they've clearly had a big rethink here. As you can imagine, there will have been recriminations. And what they've decided to do, or or they say they've decided to do, is focus on what the Ukrainians call the Joint Force Operations Area, which is down in the Donbass, where, of course, the whole thing kicked off in 2014. Okay, well, you know, if Russia reaches that goal, it secures those areas now, the change, if you will. Will this can be considered a victory for President Vladimir Putin? Well, I suppose, look, it's very difficult to look inside the head of that man, and I don't think I'm equipped to do so. But what I think we can say is that this doesn't necessarily mean that Russia has, has redefined, whilst it's redefined its operational focus, it doesn't necessarily mean it's changed its overall strategy and aims which were declared at the outset, essentially neutralizing Ukraine as a state. It just means they're going about it a different way. Now, if they succeed in taking the Donbass, the two Luhansk and Donetsk breakaway republics that he recognized in early February, then yes, he can claim that that was what he meant to do all along, but that's not going to be the end of it. That'll, if that happens, I think that will preempt a pause maybe for a few months or maybe for a few years, but it won't change the overall aims of this thing. And one other thing you said there, which I think is worth picking up, is if the Russians take this, I think that Ukrainians are going to fight like tigers for this. Their best units have always been stationed down there, and they're stationed down there now. And I think we're going to see some pretty big battles, um, perhaps even bigger than the ones we've seen so far down there in the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk areas. Frank, you write in your article for the conversation that President Putin is wanting some sort of a Korea scenario. Can you explain what that might be and what that might look like? Yes. The the chief of the Ukrainian military intelligence service 
said that this was what, what the, the Russians were looking to create, which is a divided state. And Korea would be a model for that. You could also, and there's and there plenty of other divided states that you could come up with. That's the one that um, he mentioned. Now, to me, that implies that the objective is some sort of frozen conflict. You get that in Georgia. He's done that in Georgia with Abkhazia and Ossetia. And the hint is that, that that's what the aim is here. I can't see that happening. The Ukrainians are not going to settle for losing large chunks of their territory. Zelensky has set out his stall very clearly. There's zero chance of them, he says, giving up any of that land, and they'll fight on. And they'll fight on behind Russian lines and on the front lines. And I think this, uh, unless there's a negotiated settlement, this is going to be a long struggle. Frank, we've all watched with interest about the, you know, the peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, but they have not been all that fruitful. So I'm wondering, where does the war go from here as far as diplomacy and talks are concerned? Could we see more? Yes, we may see a ceasefire soon. I think a lot of people are expecting that. I don't know whether to expect it or not. I think it all needs a contingent on things we don't know. But a lot of people are expecting that to allow the Russians to, to reset and the Ukrainians to, to do much the same. To my mind, with the way the momentum is, it would be it would serve the Russians far more uh, clearly to have a ceasefire now than the, or far, far, far better for them to have a ceasefire now than for the Ukrainians who are on what you might call a little bit of a role at the moment. And now is the time for them to press their advantage. I'm sure they're certainly doing that. But what we may see is, some hints at concessions and, you know, grounds for agreement or possible talks and all that. And we may see a ceasefire. Um, further into the future, it's more difficult to say, and, and I really couldn't couldn't comment on that. Frank, kind of circling back then, just to wrap this up, you know, can we expect Russia to replenish their losses in terms of weaponry or soldiers? Do you think that that's something that we might see as they try to continue to keep the battle going? Yes, we will see that if, they, if they're doing that, if they're, if they're willing to, to continue the fight. But it's going to take some time. They called up the April's conscripts in February, so they're being trained now. They uh, already have deployed the uh, conscripts, I think, from October. They're already in the, in the fight or at least backing it up. And they're, off court, and they're the, the regular army soldiers, the so-called contract soldiers, who are already fighting. But it's a mistake for people to think that Russia is, is, you know, has bottomless resources of soldiers and materials. They don't. And they will take a long time to regenerate what they've lost. However, also what people should understand, I'm sure most historians would agree, is that Russia does not lie down easily. And the pattern of its wars, and particularly its larger wars, is, is, is failure at first. So, for example, in Finland in 1939 or 1941 against the Germans, plenty of other examples. And then they pick themselves up, they take the casualties, they take the beatings and they carry on. It all depends on what the will of the people back home are. And that's something I can't comment on. But as one of my Russian friends told me, the Russians are very patient people. Hmm. Frank, thanks for your time this morning and your insight. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Good morning to you all. Interesting conversation for sure as to what's happening in Ukraine and things change so, so quickly now as well. I just don't think you can ever take Vladimir Putin at his word, can you? I mean, obviously, we've seen the, it's, it, it just comes true every time. He says he's going to do one thing and, and then he does something completely different. Latest news headlines are coming out and, there's, and it's, it's a war zone. You're not exactly sure exactly which location or where people are hearing things from, but they're, you know, hearing bombs still in, in shelling in the areas. Mm-hmm. So is, is that echoes or is it literally 
say one thing, do another, which, uh, if you'll recall, it was President Vladimir Putin a mere five weeks ago, uh, you know, just before the invasion saying, we're not, we have no intention, it's not going to happen. And now here we are. Um, there, I, I'm just seeing some light, though, and, I, and I'm, I'm happy to, to, to think we, we could see a conclusion sooner rather I than later. I hope so, too. Uh, interesting today, they're saying Turkey's top diplomat is working to bring the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers together for talks in two weeks. In two weeks. So what happens in those next two weeks? I mean, so much, so much devastation, so much, you know, so many lives lost potentially as well. It, yeah, time, I would think time is of the essence here. Uh, but, you know, I guess if you're if you're saying it's going to be in two weeks, at least there's plans, continued mm-hmm. plans for diplomacy or, or what something could look like, what some kind of a compromise. You wouldn't think you'd have to make a compromise when your neighbor invades you. Uh, but it looks like Ukraine will. And in fact, today, uh, Trudeau will meet with a delegation of deputies from Ukraine's parliament. So Canada continuing to do as much as we possibly can, hopefully. And that's all we can do, right? Yeah. The federal government says Canada will welcome an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees fleeing the Russian invasion. But some critics say the robust response from the West to the current crisis highlights disparities in how other refugees have been treated in the past. Global investigative journalist Brian Hill joins us now with more on what some experts are saying about Canada's response. We say good morning to Brian. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. So the situation in Ukraine is obviously critical, and millions of Ukrainians fleeing their homes, they need help. Uh, what are the people you've been speaking with saying about how Canada is helping them and how that compares to other crises in the past? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the, the facts speak for themselves. The, 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 the situation in Ukraine is, is dire, and we've seen close to 4 million people fleeing that country uh, who are now in need of assistance. And so everyone I've spoken to has said that they're, they're quite proud of the response that they've seen from Canada and from other countries and want to see that help go to these Ukrainians who are in such need right now. Um, the, the concern here, or, or the, 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 the criticism that's being raised, though, is that while this is really a, the way we're responding to Ukraine as a model, what uh, for how we ought to be responding. They're saying that same approach hasn't been taken in other crises in the past. So whether it's Afghanistan, um, which is something that's been top of mind in recent months, uh, the, the crisis in Syria before that, or any number of uh, crises that we've seen in, in Africa, for example, or elsewhere, saying that, you know, there have always been caps on the number of people that have been allowed to come to Canada. The response has been slow at times. Um, that, that we haven't seen that same sort of uh, open welcome, uh, whether it's in Europe or in Canada or in the United States, to refugees of color or black refugees that we're now seeing uh, to people fleeing Ukraine. So I guess that leads to the next question then, Brian. You know, why are we seeing this quick response? Is it because of... I mean, dare I say it, is that because the color of the skin of these refugees, what, what is it, if, you know, that's allowing this to happen so quickly? Not that it shouldn't, but it should also in these other circumstances like you're talking about with Afghanistan and Syria. Right. Yeah, and I don't think we have a definitive answer to that question. And, and absolutely, again, reiterating that the response to Ukraine is being heralded as a model. Everyone is saying... Uh, this is how we ought to be doing this in all the cases. Um, some folks point to the historic and cultural political ties that Canada and other Western countries have to Ukraine, uh, the fact that it literally borders Europe, 
um, and therefore people are fleeing directly from the war zone into European nations, mostly into Poland. Um, but others, including a gentleman I spoke with who spent 12 years living in a UN-run UN run refugee camp in Kenya, say, well, race, race is an issue here, that, that uh, the way uh, Westerners view uh, refugees from countries like Africa, uh, like uh, Syria or Afghanistan or countries in Africa, is that they're not really fleeing real conflicts. Uh, we've heard politicians in Canada and others throw around the word bogus to describe refugees coming from Africa, saying that their claims aren't legitimate. And uh, these are stereotypes, uh, these folks say, that undermine the credibility of refugees who come from countries uh, where the people are predominantly non-white. And so as a result of that, You've got these uh, uh, refugees of color who are saying you can't ignore this factor uh, in, in terms of how the West has responded to us versus how they're responding to others. I'm wondering, Brian, you know, as a Canadian, I, I feel like we, while well, we see ourselves as very welcoming for refugees, is that something, a view that we hold of ourselves, or are we seen as a welcoming country to refugees uh, on the global stage? Mm-hmm. I think Canada is a welcoming country, uh, and, and Canadians are generally very welcoming. Uh, there's private sponsorship for refugees. That was certainly the case when it comes to Syria. Um, the government, uh, you know, has offered to help 40,000 Afghan refugees. That's, I think we've helped about 10,000 so far, off the 40,000. Um, you know, but in terms of the big global picture... The critique from many folks in this area, humanitarians and, 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 and refugee advocates, is that Canada could do a lot more. Right now, you've got 84 million people around the world uh, who have been forced to leave their homes due to conflict. 26, almost 27 million refugees uh, who have been forced to flee their countries due to conflict. And that doesn't include the refugees from Ukraine. So uh, the, the numbers that we're talking about historically in Canada, yes, we're welcoming, more welcoming than many countries, but people say we could do a lot more still. Brian, we're seeing refugees being settled from Ukraine in a matter of weeks. What is the general time that it would take for refugees to be settled from other countries where there's conflict? Years, many, many years. (laughs) Um, You know, and that's one of the biggest uh, perhaps differences between the response to Ukraine versus the response to other refugee crises. So we said we'll waive many of the visa applications. We'll, we'll, we'll let you come from any country in Europe. We'll um, uh, create these streamlined and expedited processes to get you here as fast as possible. They, the government says that the processing time for Ukrainians would be about two weeks, but on average, for, for refugees, the, the World Bank and the United Nations say that the average refugee spends about 10 to 26 years living as a refugee. Wow. Brian, thanks so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That is global investigative journalist Brian Hill. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that in the end, we, we look at these things and it's it's not a one size fits all when we're trying to help people. And I think that sometimes we lose fa- sight of the fact. And I know it sounds cliche when I say we live in the greatest country in the world. Well, we do. I think we do. Uh, we can't imagine having to pack and, and get the heck out of here right now, today, mm-hmm. tomorrow. 
uh, chance to flee your country. So I think we, we have to do it's ours. And what can we do? We we're doing what we can. And this is included within that and under that umbrella. I think it's an important discussion to have. I mean, just it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, you don't have to like it or not like it. it's just a, a, it's information, right? It's a discussion. And I think that's sort of half the battle. We did have somebody, you know, say stop pooping on Canada because we're having the talk. And I don't think that that's the intent of, of yeah. this discussion. It's just an interesting one to have. Why is there a difference? Is there a difference, right? And if there is, maybe we can fix it for the next go round when we have a next, you know, a next set of refugees that really, really need our help. And, and we know it'll happen for whatever reason it might be. In this case, you know, as a couple of texters say, um, some of these countries are uh, have terrorism and terrorists yeah. so they have to be vetted the people coming from those countries into Canada and that's a very fair point John texted that in a couple other people did too so I mean I think we do have to do our due diligence but we have to make sure that it's being done fairly across the board and if nothing else it opens up that discussion it opens up the mm-hmm. parameters surrounding what we do when we're welcoming people it's it's the very least and guess what Sue I think we got enough space in Canada I think we do too <laughs> we got I the room we do too. you got the spare room you might as well help <laughs> yeah. somebody and if you're planning a vacation this summer, you're certainly not alone. It's expected businesses will have a big surge of vacation requests to handle. With advice on how to help you navigate your employees' vacation requests, we're joined this morning by Andrew Caldwell, HR Advisory Manager at HR Consulting Firm Peninsula Canada. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you very much. I know people are very excited that we are once again able and quite willing to travel. But yeah, that will mean a lot of uh, vacation requests to businesses. So what can businesses do to handle the influx that's expected, you know, now that the COVID travel restrictions have eased? Well, I mean... Those, kudos to those who want to travel right now. I am still of the mindset that I, I will staycation at home for a little bit longer. But uh, if those employees are planning to, to go on vacation and the managers are maybe concerned about the influx, it's always best to go back to your policy. When do employees have to book vacation? Is there a time frame? How much time can they request at one time? Uh, is there a system in place where it can be only one employee from one department at a time or can there be two? Are there caps? What is in place? If nothing, now might be the time that employers want to start to engage in uh, rolling out these policies. It's interesting because, yeah, we're going from zero to 60 from one summer to the next. Would would a first-come, first-serve approach work if there's not a concrete policy in place? I would say that's probably going to be their best bet um, that it is there, but it's, again, transparent. Send out an email, send out a memo, do something to post to say, hey, book your vacation now, first come, first serve. And then beware of the fisticuffs in the hallway. Uh, what what tools exactly. are actually available to businesses, Andrew, if they need help managing the flood of vacation requests, say? Oh, there's numerous tools out there. I mean, our, one alone is one that we have as well, which is called Bright HR, where you can schedule their vacations. They can go in and book it from their phone, from their tablet, from their laptop they can book it all right there and the manager would see it and be able to approve it or deny it but in the tool they can also see the schedule and see who's booked vacation already because there's tools out there that they can use absolutely but what you want to have is also a schedule in there to see who's booked vacation who's been approved so that you're not getting these uh, as we said fisticuffs right Mm -hmm. you're not getting people in arguments because it's all there Mm -hmm. you know uh, you know i don't want to throw you a curveball here andrew but are there rights as an employee to be 
you know, allowed to take your vacation time? Are there parameters surrounding that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in Alberta, you're entitled to uh, minimum vacation times. Now, some employers provide better benefits than those, but uh, for example, if you've been with an employer for four years or less, you're entitled to two weeks. If you've been there for five years or longer, you're entitled to three weeks. So those are your entitlements. You can get those times. But in terms of when you can take those times, that is always up to the discretion of the employer. Now, the end of the year, though, is that the employer has to ensure you've taken those times. So it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. Interesting discussion. You know, everybody right now, brains are just, the wheels are turning and everybody's starting to plan their plans. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Sue and Andy. Have a good day. You too. Andrew Caldwell, HR Advisory Manager at HR Consulting Firm, Peninsula Canada. Yes. You and I have already started talking about holidays because yeah. one of us, we we are on off, right? We're we kind of a team. We are. We can't leave at the same time, right? So we try to coordinate things and make sure it's fair for everybody. I'm curious as to how many people have started planning for holidays, whether it's this summer or otherwise. Good point. Well, we can't be, uh, you know... Uh Leaving at the same time because people will start to talk, Sue. But yeah, you know, <laughs> if they aren't already. Well, in, in in my case, my wife surprised me for a trip to Las Vegas. I do know that. Yeah, for my because well, she talked to you and coordinated. We need this time off, and yep. I was the only person who didn't know. <laughs> me and uh, Wayne Newton are going to be hanging hanging out. <laughs> awesome. But um, you know, it's interesting to me because yeah, I I had to. Oh, we have to make sure. And it was you know for my fortieth birthday that she booked this thing. It was not and your fortieth. So, and so, you know, I was like, oh, do I have, yeah, but you have to, you have to be strategic. You have to coordinate. And uh, yeah, to the point that we heard from, from Caldwell there, it, it, it's a case that you're, you're owed these holidays. Your employer has to give you that chance. Yeah, but you don't necessarily get them when you want them. So get your requests in ASAP as Andy's wife and how, did and how as she celebrated you, his 60th birthday. How, how far are you going to venture this summer, by the way? <laughs> um, I don't know anywhere this summer particularly. We usually just kind of go camping and do that sort of thing. But I'm thinking November, October, yeah. November, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready to... Get on board that jet plane. I think we all want to stretch our legs out and uh, visit somewhere. I don't want to stretch mine. I want to lay them on the beach. Oh, that's what you... And watch them burn. Got your full plan. 34 years ago, the eyes of the world were on our city when Calgary hosted the 1988 Winter Olympic Games. But what remains of Calgary's Olympic legacy? 770 CHQR on-air contributor Dave McIver has more in this installment of Where We Live. In February 1988, the world came to Calgary. The city hosted the Winter Olympics. Canada would win five medals, and the stories of Eddie the Eagle and the Jamaican bobsled team would eventually make their way to Hollywood. But 34 years later, what does Calgary's Olympic legacy look like? Dale Oviatt, senior manager of communications at Winsport, on what still remains and how things are evolving. The, the Calgary 88 Olympics put Calgary on the map. And, you know, to this day, we're 34 years after and that's what this city is still known for, you know, obviously pre-COVID, but, you know, we still get guests from all over the world who come and they want to see the facilities and, and want to see what it is. It's not the same. It's not your dad's uh, Olympic venues. You know, we've had to make some adjustment adjustments over the years and, and realizing that we can't be everything for everybody. And sports evolve and we're part of that evolution. In 2019, the city of Calgary thought about taking another run at hosting the Games, this time in 2026, but a no vote on a plebiscite shut the door on that and, in the minds of some, killed Calgary's Olympic legacy, with the shutting down of the ski jumps and a stalled renovation on the bobsled track. Oviad says the legacy isn't dead, it just looks different. I think the 2026 Olympics would have helped rejuvenate the city, 
uh, help make uh, a lot of our facilities more accessible, which they're currently not. It would have given new life to our city and really put us up back on the world map because, you know, as much as they say we still get people coming to look at those facilities, uh, you know, that, that fades as well. So if we could have got back on the map, that would have been perfect. You know, it's it comes back to that point about evolution and, you know, the bobsled track, it's not dead yet. We're still trying to get government money. Yes, the ski jumps are gone, but that's the evolution of sport. We now have a half pipe, uh, which is one of the best in the world. Uh, our slope style course, same thing. We get national teams that to come and spend weeks and weeks at our facility. That's part of the legacy for them training. And, you know, obviously we have that half pipe for those 12 year old boys or girls who are still learning how to fly their trade in the pipe and they get to use it as well. So it's it's all about the future, not just uh, about the present. And you look at uh, Canada Olympic Park in itself, you know, we still attract 1.2 million visitors a year. Uh, you know, we're still a part of the World Cup tours, so we get those national athletes, mostly in those snowboard and ski sports. Uh, and we still get some coming to use the ice house from a sliding sports perspective, bobsleigh, skeleton luge. And we think we will get back to that point. And uh, it is really important that we continue to use our facilities to do that. Uh, the arenas themselves, that's still home to Hockey Canada. So, you know, we have sledge tournaments and we have other hockey tournaments and uh, Alpine Canada is still on our site. And it's, it's, it's definitely not dead and has a lot, uh, a very good future ahead. As the legacy evolves over time, is there still an opportunity to revitalize some of the older facilities and combine them with the new things we have today? Like everything, things have to change. And, uh, you know, some people might say it's not for the better, but uh, ultimately it is. And, you know, from our perspective, we need help to make it better. And, you know, we are calling on the federal government to chip in some money to help us revive some of these facilities. And, you know, that'll be the true telltale sign of what the future does hold. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Where We Live is brought to you by Furnace Family. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.